Uh, first, I'd like to welcome uh, Maria Fitzpatrick, our MLA from uh, Lethbridge East. And also our mayor, uh, His Worship, Chris Spearman, sitting out there. So a little bit of housekeeping. Please uh, turn off your cell phones. Uh, we'll start with a 30-minute talk and then followed by 30 minutes lunch. The lunch will be $14. And if you don't want to have lunch, you can always just have $2 for coffee. The washrooms are there on the, on the side. Um, we will have a question and answer period after the lunch. So the uh, question and answer period as well as the talk will be recorded by Shaw TV and uh, the presentations will be available on their website. Um, so we'll have uh, about a half hour talk and uh, so today's topic is uh, the cycle of addiction and challenges of the opioid crisis, a perspective from an emergency doctor. So Dr. Sean Wild, he grew up in central Alberta. He received his bachelor's of science uh, in biochemistry at the University of Lethbridge. Then he studied medicine at the University of uh, Calgary. He interned in Lethbridge and surrounding communities. Then he moved on and received additional training in emergency medicine back in Calgary, and he joined the emergency department at the Chinook Regional Hospital in 2012. And he has vast experience, of course, as an emergency doctor with addictions and the opioid crisis that we, we have today. So he'll share his experiences with us, with us today. So uh, welcome, Dr. Sean Wild. Okay, well, uh, hang on here, I just got to get my slideshow running the way I was expecting. <coughs> Having a bit of technical difficulty here, uh, bear with me please. Okay, and we're away. So I'd like to first of all thank SACPA for the invitation to speak today. I have to admit I don't know quite how I got here to be honest. I, uh, I am not an expert on addictions, although I've been doing a bit of cramming recently uh, in preparation to come here. Uh, but uh, I have seen a lot of it obviously in my work and uh, I posted a blog post about some of my thoughts about the crisis and it got a lot of attention which is what led to my invitation to speak here today. So a caveat, I'm not here representing the hospital or my colleagues in the emergency department. I'm representing my own views, many of which are shared by some of them, um, but I'm just hoping to, uh, to share my thoughts uh, on this important issue with you. So uh, why I'm here today is I want to uh, kind of focus on one question because the time is limited. 
we often hear the expression, addiction is a disease of the brain, and I want to address what do we mean by that, and what are the implications of that, because that has a lot to do with our approach to the issue. Uh, now, I find that a lot of difficulty in addressing addictions comes in trying to reconcile addictive behavior with our usual understanding of choice and consequences. Reinforcing the choices that come with consequence is a central paradigm in how we teach our children and manage our systems of laws. Unfortunately, when it comes to addiction, it seems that both treatment and enforcement approaches that are based on this paradigm have not worked very well and they tend to break down. Uh, Police Chief Davis spoke at this forum uh, last year about the problem and he used the phrase, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. So I would like to look a little bit at why that is. And so it's going to mean looking at some science and I'm going to try to keep it simple and accessible, but it is important that we recognize uh, what is going on in the brain. A little bit of perspective first, uh, just to remind us that this problem is not a local problem. This is North America wide. This is a graph from uh, Philadelphia area over 10 years showing the increase in overdose visits for opioid medications. And you can see the big spike at 2014. There is similar data for regions all over North America and our own would likely look similar to this. So we're not the only ones dealing with this problem. Now we do have some reason for specific concern in our area. This is Alberta data from the most recent report on opioid and substance abuse. And we can see uh, over since 2015 those blue bars there, that represents the south zone. South zone is 54% higher than the provincial average on emergency department visits for opioid use and other substance disorders. I'd like to kind of clarify there too, that does say and other substances of misuse, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about that here. So just a quick note on when we see substances abuse in the emergency department, what exactly are we seeing? And number one, by and large, is alcohol. Alcohol is the biggest substance abuse issue worldwide. It is responsible for the most, most death and the most harm, most harm. And what we see here is consistent with that concern worldwide. It's associated with multiple mental health conditions, violence, suicide, accidental trauma. And I think it's worth taking a step back and remembering that uh, statistically speaking, if uh, an innocent bystander in our city is going to be harmed by substance abuse from another person, it's almost certainly going to be alcohol related, impaired driving I'm thinking of specifically. We see that far more than we see other types of abuse, for example, needle sticks, which are a concern. So uh, tobacco we won't talk about, it's well recognized uh, as being addictive and causing health problems. Uh, cannabis, uh, yes it's addictive, uh, legal or not, it's still a drug that's associated with harms and we do see them in our department. Opioids, that's kind of what brings us all here, we're going to talk about that a bit later. Uh, stimulants are the other drug abuse we see quite a bit, this includes cocaine, crack, uh, amphetamines. Uh, these medications induce a state of agitation, uh, irrationality, uh, psychosis, and dangerous behavior if they're taken in large amounts or for long periods of time. Uh, they can even be fatal in a large enough overdose. Now, uh, I know that uh, the police have been talking about this being a worsening crisis in our city, and uh, certainly my impression in the emergency department is that we are seeing more of this next. Uh, for example, uh, Winnipeg right now uh, is experiencing a crisis of methamphetamine abuse. 
Uh, a recent report says there's been a 1,200% increase in methamphetamine ER visits in the last five years. So this may well be the, the next evolving crisis. So with addiction being such a pernicious issue, uh, I want to look at the brain pathways. And let's look first at the healthy brain. So don't get too worried about the names and, and stuff. I'm going to simplify it as, as best as I can here. But basically, addiction is damage to or maladaptation of certain normal critical brain pathways that we need to survive and to function. For the purposes of addiction, you can think of the brain in two parts. One is what addiction counselors call the reptilian brain. This is the primitive area that is common to all animals. It's responsible for our survival instinct, instincts. It directs us to seek out pleasure and avoid pain and programs many of the pathways that keep us alive. Next, uh, as we are mammals and the most evolved mammals, we have the planning and judgment centers of our brain. That's the frontal and prefrontal cortex. Uh, the role of this area of the brain is to reflect, consider, make ethical decisions, and plan for the future. The prefrontal cortex, in particular, uh, has a job to regulate the emotional impulses that are coming from the reptilian brain. Its job is to inhibit actions that are dangerous to our well-being or considered wrong or unethical. Now, when signals are sent in the brain, they are mediated by the release of chemicals, naturally occurring chemicals in our brain called neurotransmitters. And that's important to know because that's where addiction uh, effects are seen, is in changes to these neurotransmitters, which changes the signals in our brain. So we're going to take a closer look at one neurotransmitter in particular and its role in the primitive brain. This neurotransmitter is called dopamine. Now dopamine's role in a normal healthy brain, brain is to help us to feel pleasure, to feel motivation, and be energized. Dopamine is what pushes us through the day and motivates us to, to uh, achieve the things that we need to in our life. Uh, shown in green there are the effects of an overdose of dopamine. It can cause anxiety, psychosis, and a general ramped up overdrive. In red are the symptoms of a lack of dopamine, fatigue, loss of motivation, loss of pleasure. Now, oh, that's my mistake. The normal activity of dopamine in our brain uh, is triggered by certain activities that are vital to our survival and our success as humans. Um, eating, reproduction, uh, personal achievements. Uh, if you've scored a touchdown or your team has won a big game and you feel a rush, that's dopamine. Uh, and those are, the, that's, those are the natural purposes of dopamine in our brains is to reward us for those successes and important things. So when uh, dopamine release is triggered, that triggers what we call the reward pathway in the brain. Uh, the reward pathway gives us a sense of pleasure, reinforces that action, and motivates us to repeat it. So important to remember, if you don't have dopamine, there's no motivation to act. Animal studies have shown that animals will literally sit around to death without dopamine. So let's look at its role in the healthy reward pathway. So when an important event triggers a dopamine stimulus, there are also other signals that are sent to other areas of the brain. A trigger is sent to the survival memory center of our brain. This is where our brain learns patterns that are critical to our survival and learns ways to deal with future threats to our well-being. These memories are important, and they are adaptive to surviving in our surroundings. A good example of this is in the, in the brain of a developing baby. 
Babies, of course, are helpless, unable to care for themselves, and they really only have one coping mechanism to solve their problems, which is to cry. And this cry then attracts the presence of a caregiver who can help deal with whatever the threat to the baby is, whether they're hungry, uncomfortable, cold, um, feeling scared. So when this pathway is reinforced by the presence of a comforting parent, then the, the baby's brain learns that crying is an important pathway in dealing with stress, and that reinforces that action in the future. Uh, studies have shown that children who are deprived of, of care and are not picked up or responded to will stop crying, and areas of the brain will be severely underdeveloped. Another uh, effect of the dopamine release is a signal to the motor and action planning center of the brain. This is where we plan our actions, and this signal motivates that area to seek out whatever stimulus caused that re release of dopamine. And the important part for us that we have in between is the prefrontal cortex, which can make a judgment. So it can take what's going on, look at it in context, and make a choice and decide, is this impulse something I should act on now, or is this something that I should suppress and change my behavior in more important ways? And so it's this judgment from the prefrontal cortex that uh, keeps us out of jail and out of trouble with our significant others for acting on every impulse we might have. So the resulting interplay is our behavior. So let's look a little bit at what happens to this reward pathway in the presence of drugs. By various mechanisms, drugs of abuse result in increased dopamine stimulation. This unnaturally high level of dopamine causes a pleasure surge. That's the high of using drugs. All drugs of abuse do this, in addition to other effects. Each drug is different and will have different effects depending on what else it stimulates, but all do this. Some of it do, more than, do it more than others. In general, a bigger dopamine rush is associated with a more addictive drug. Methamphetamine is one of the most potent dopamine-boosting drugs. Now, there are some consequences of this dopamine surge beyond just feeling good for a while. The body knows that this is a threat to have unusually high levels of dopamine, and it responds by making itself less sensitive to that dopamine. It does that by what we call downgrading dopamine receptors. So this diagram is a picture of a brain cell receiving a signal from somewhere else in the body or somewhere else in the brain. Uh, you can think of a receptor as like a keyhole and the neurotransmitter as the key that unlocks that keyhole and then sends a signal. When the body makes fewer of these receptors, uh, then a dopamine release causes less of a powerful signal than it did in the past. The real-world result of that is what we call tolerance, meaning that a user is going to need more of the drug to get the same effect they used to have. Also, natural highs no longer work. The amount of dopamine released by those usual pleasurable activities is not strong enough to send a signal. Additionally, without the presence of the drug, the user can experience a dopamine deficiency. That's the fatigue, the lack of motivation, and the general state of low energy. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, the prefrontal cortex of our brain also uses dopamine and other drug-affected neurotransmitters to do its work. When those transmitters are downgraded, the inhibitory signal that the prefrontal cortex sends to modulate our behavior becomes weakened. There is literally damage to the brain area that is in charge of regulating and planning our behavior. So we'll return to the brain a little bit later. First, I want to talk a bit more about opioids and the opioid crisis. 
So opioids work by mimicking or stimulating the release of a natural neurotransmitters called endorphins. This is another group of chemicals that naturally occur in the brain. Endorphins are natural painkillers and anxiety reducers. They help us form social bonds, induce feelings of love and connection, and are vital to enable us to deal with stress to push through difficult parts of life. They are released naturally in response to the comfort of a loved one. Note that physical and emotional pain are perceived the same way by the brain, and both are affected by endorphins, and thus by opioids. Opioids are used medically for acute pain control, and they are very important and useful in the proper circumstances, but misuse can have serious consequences. The term opioid crisis is often used in reference to two distinct but linked events that are both issues of current concern. The first one is the phenomena of overprescription of opioids by physicians and the abuse or street diversion of these medications. This phenomena is probably linked to uh, the early or sorry the late 90s when uh, aggressive pharmaceutical advertising of new painkillers was directed at public and physicians. Uh, and probably in a deceptive manner that implied they were not as addictive as they were. These were also sold with the paradigm that pain is always something that needs to be treated with drugs and that a physician who had a patient in pain was irresponsible not to use them. As a result, prescription rates for opioids soared over several decades. The medical community has since become aware of the harm of this paradigm, but a lot of the damage has been done. We are working to find the best way to deal with opioid dependency and to deal with chronic pain. Unfortunately, some of these users who became, or sorry, some of these patients who became dependent on prescription opioids have felt the need to turn to street drugs if they can no longer get enough prescriptions to meet the demands of this tolerance and dependency. <clears throat> the mechanism of opioid dependency is similar to what we looked at with dopamine but includes reduced sensitivity to natural endorphins as well as that dopamine change. So the result of this reduced sensitivity to endorphins is an increased sensitivity to pain, heightened anxiety, and possibly impaired social bonding skills. I've seen this in my own practice in uh, a few cases where I'd have to give a, an, an anesthetic to fix a laceration on someone who was dependent on opioids. And the pain of just getting that injection was, is, for some of these people is unbearable and they, they can't tolerate it at all. And you can compare that to uh, a child who needs one and if the child is closely bonded to their parents and being adequately soothed, they will often be able to deal with the painful experience much more easily because of their natural endorphins that are released. So this brings us to the second meaning of the term opioid crisis or the fentanyl crisis. So this is different than the diversion of street drugs or overprescription. This is the arrival in the last five or so years, I think, of what you might call meth lab style illegally produced synthetic opioids. They are much more potent than diverted prescriptions. Many of these drugs mimic medications that are used in hospital, in operating rooms, in controlled circumstances uh, to sedate patients for medical procedures. The biggest problem with these being on the street uh, is that dosing is very inconsistent. This graphic here shows a representation of the lethal dose of old-fashioned heroin compared to the new fentanyl or carfentanyl synthetic opioids. And you can imagine that in a poor quality control illegal drug lab, it's very hard to get a, very, a consistent concentration of those tiny potent medications into pills or 
crystals or whatever it is they're producing and selling. The result being that users on the street uh, never know what the dose is and what they're taking. Now, I was speaking with a few colleagues recently. We were reminiscing, I guess, about the, the early days of the opioid crisis. And one of the nurses was describing to me uh, almost the day that she realized it had arrived. Uh, she was working a shift, and paramedics brought in a, a 19 or so year old male who was in cardiac arrest. And it's not terribly common that young people that age suddenly drop dead. So it's a remarkable experience and something that gets everyone's attention. And a few hours later, a second young person came in with cardiac arrest, and almost immediately a third. And for these experienced nurses, it was very obvious that something different was going on here. And this pattern has really reflected what we saw particularly at the beginning of the fentanyl crisis. We would have all of a sudden ambulances bringing in or people dropping off, uh, people who were near death or, or already dead. Uh, who needed emergent, urgent intervention to save their lives. And usually these were young people. So the way an opioid kills is through sedating you to death. A small dose of opioids can, cause, bring, can bring relief of pain. A little more causes euphoria, more sedation, and then your breathing stops. Uh, this is a quiet death, it's easily missed, and eventually the body just shuts down due to lack of oxygen. The sedation is so intense that the normal alarm bells that would cause your brainstem to breathe are suppressed. This can be reversed by giving a medication called naloxone or Narcan. And that's how we treat them and it works very quickly. Now there were days during the, I say the height of the opioid crisis, it may not have peaked, but from our perspective, the height of this chaos, uh, there's days that we ran out of naloxone and we'd have to be doing CPR on a patient while we called the pharmacy to urgently send down more or see if the paramedics had any in their unit. Uh, there was a particular hard, particularly hard impact on casual drug users. There's people out there who live functional lives, just like a functional alcoholic who sometimes indulge in other street drugs. And these people's bodies were not as accustomed to these high doses of opioids. And they were particularly at risk of sudden death. Often they wouldn't even know the drug they had bought had fentanyl in it. So we also saw a lot of regular users, the people that are visibly drug-addicted populations on the street who would come back with repeated visits, sometimes multiple times in a day. And this really shines the spotlight on the insanity of addiction, uh, that people would be near dead so many times but would still turn back to what had just killed them. And many times, that almost killed them, and many times these people had a number of family and friends who had died of a fentanyl overdose as well. So the fact that this acute threat to life didn't scare them straight, I think is significant. Uh, that takes us to the definition, a simplified definition of addiction, which is the continued use of a substance despite obvious and repeated harmful effects on your life. A lot of these people were quite humbled and scared after these experiences, and they expressed their desire to change. And we did what we could to help, and it was very difficult because addiction is such a difficult disease to treat. Uh, admission to hospital usually doesn't help. Often their families are, are demanding it or wanting it, and, and we don't have it to offer. We know that the hospitals are not well equipped to deal with the, the chronic issues of substance abuse, and if the user feels a craving too strong, they'll likely leave anyway. So we'll offer resources. Uh, connections to social services uh, that can help, but we know their lives are often too disorganized to follow through, and we're likely to see them there again. 
Now it's easy for us as caregivers to get frustrated with this cycle and see this over and over again. Uh, sometimes, some days we feel the same way about providing care to this population as you might feel about spending tax dollars on treating them, like it's a futile effort. But our judgment, I've found, has been tempered by what we see and the obvious implications of that. We see the same cycle over and over again in dozens of different people. Their behavior, in some cases, is almost 100% predictable. And it's really hard to not ask yourself, are they still making choices in this situation? Now, we still see regular opioid overdoses, but it's less chaotic than it used to be. Uh, I, the stats show that drug use is not decreasing, but I think we have better frontline recognition, treatment, and, and resources. Every overdose that is reserved reversed by EMS or at the safe consumption site is one less expensive visit to the ER. We're still kept on our toes as drugs like carfentanil sometimes need up to 10 times the usual dose of Narcan. So let's return uh, briefly to the, the brain effects of repeated drug use. There's a bit more of the story here. So remember, every stimulus on the reward pathway imprints this memory that's crucial to our survival. With repeated drug use, uh, and a loss of natural highs, the brain increases the importance of this pathway above any other. Soon, a drug user may become similar to a newborn infant whose only response to stress is to cry. In the, this case, the drug user has only one working coping mechanism, and that's using drugs. So it's this maladaptive survival pathway uh, that is thought to be what makes addiction so hard to break. Let's look at how that, how that happens. So anything that can cause stress or discomfort is going to trigger the brain to find a solution. For a, a habituated drug user, these can be pain, loneliness, fear, guilt, uh, even the sight of drug paraphernalia as your brain forms a memory uh, about what was around you when you got the drug high. Now, this is an important part here. Just the anticipation of drug use stimulated by this memory, which was triggered by stress, uh, can cause a release of dopamine. And this is the drug craving. Uh, this is a motivating signal that is sent to the motor centers of our brain, urging us to repeat the stimulus that was recalled by the memory, the drug use, to get that state back. And I think it's important to note here that uh, at this point, it's not really about getting a high any longer. There's such a chronic dopamine deficiency that drug use is really about feeling normal again for many of these people. Recall that also our prefrontal cortex at this point has become very weak and the inhibitory signal very weak as well. Even if the person knows that jail or death are possible consequences of their actions, they still can't override what they feel as the need. And I would compare this to, imagine you haven't eaten for three or four days and you, you know that there's a place you can get food your, the signals that will be sent by the survival centers of your brain are telling you that if you don't eat, you're going to die. And in that case, it's probably accurate at some point. Uh, for a drug user, they have the same stimulus, perhaps stronger. Uh, they won't actually die if they don't, but that's certainly what their brain is telling them, and it's a very hard instinct to ignore. So the outcome is often predictable, uh, repeated drug use. So if all this isn't bad enough, there's one other thing that we need, can just touch on, and that's the impact of childhood trauma and past abuse. While anyone can develop an addiction to drugs, research confirms that the hardest affected street drug using populations are almost always survivors of serious early life trauma and neglect. So why is that? 
During infancy and childhood, the absence of positive reinforcement of healthy coping and survival pathways uh, produces the same changes in the brain as drug use does. So decreased sensitivity to dopamine and endorphins, uh, pathways that are not used to being used. Multiple ingrained maladaptive behaviors, like self-soothing strategies, are usually developed in these people. Uh, Gabor Mate is a Canadian physician who's worked with a lot of drug-using populations, and he's written some books. He shared the experience of a street heroin user describing her first time using heroin as being like a, a hug in a needle. And the significance of that is that for people who have experienced a lot of pain and abuse and neglect in their lives, often their brains have not experienced the emotions we take for granted with human connections and bonding. And sometimes that first drug use, which is often prompted by their environment or the people around them, uh, can give them that sensation that they've never had before. And that's a, a powerful trigger that's going to make them much more likely to become dependent on that substance. Similarly, untreated mental health disorders, particularly depression, anxiety, and PTSD, can prime the brain in similar ways to be more susceptible to chemical stimulation and addiction. This is the mechanism, this trauma to the brain, of intergenerational trauma and the intergenerational drug abuse that we see in many of our at-risk communities. The previously traumatized brains of parents are more stressed, less emotionally available to their offspring, and more likely to use and introduce maladaptive coping strategies like drugs. Drugs are often in the environment already. Under these circumstances, it is almost inevitable for uh, the brain to be damaged in such a way that primes it to respond to a substance of addiction. So a final thought about uh, choices uh, in healthcare we notice especially that the consequences come on their own. We don't need us to impose them generally. Uh, almost everyone we see is, if you have enough information, may not have been there if they'd made some choices differently in the past. And that's a part of being human. The problem with, uh, with drug addiction is once those bad choices are made, especially in the environment of uh, previous trauma, it becomes almost impossible for a person to get out of them. However, recovery does happen and is possible. We don't have time to talk about it much, but the way out of addiction is paradoxically uh, starts with a choice to recover. Now, this is a choice the drug user has to make. It's a hard one to make, and they have to make it over and over again. This choice begins a process of gradually retraining the prefrontal cortex to reassert its role in impulse regulation. Over time, it can recover, but the barriers are immense, and the path is full of setbacks. So I don't have a, a list of of solutions for you today, but I do have a list of suggestions based on the information I've shared that I believe and others have, other experts in the field who know more about it than I have said will improve the chances of recovery for people suffering from addictions of all kinds. And I will leave these with you to read uh, as we're out of time. Uh, essentially, we need to recognize the biological basis of addiction, recognize the need for uh, multiple approaches to, to treat the patient. Uh, so thank you for your time. I hope something I've shared today will make you more informed in choosing what actions you support in the future. Thank you.